Welcome to Rome Cuny Bible Church, where we desire to become a worshiping community of grace and truth by sharing the love of Christ locally and globally. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4. We're getting back into this book and we're finishing it up. Though I had, had a desire that we'd be done with Philippians by the end of the year, and now we're in 2021, and, but it's fitting, the Lord knows, especially with our text today. So Philippians chapter 4, uh, like I said, I'm thankful to be back. We got to visit family and some friends. Uh, thank you, Kim, for teaching last week, and I was, I, we joined you guys. Uh, we were watching online, and so we were with you, just not with you. So we got to, got to be with you, but we were thankful, um, thankful for God's word being taught. Thank you, Kim. Um, just uh, before we look at our text, I wanted to kind of recap and remind ourselves as we look at this book, um, the title of the series of this book, I call it The Birth of Joy because joy is not based on circumstance, it's, it's eternal, it's deeper. Um, Paul, he's in prison in Rome and he's writing this book, as, he was wanting to write this book because of the gift that he received from the church of Philippi, from Epaphroditus. He came, uh, they heard about Paul's imprisonment, they knew that Paul needed to be taken care of, and during that time it wasn't that um, it was a state's job to take care of the prisoners, the prisoners had to take care of themselves, and so the church has said, fine, we want to help you, Paul. We're so thankful that you came and shared the gospel with us 10 years ago. And as they were already generous and supported him in missionary work, they were going to support him while he was in prison. And so Paul's response was, thank you. You know, this book that he writes of only four chapters, though, is very deep as we look at what started this mindset of joy. And we know that joy isn't, like I said, based on circumstances, eternal. It's different than happiness. You could be happy that your team scored a touchdown, but sad that they lost and now they're not in the playoffs. (laughs) Not to mention the Seahawks. Commentator Stephen Lawson, he said, joy is the spiritual grace that we all need to experience in our Christian lives. We live in a world of stress and anxiety that all too easily and subtly can steal the peace of God from our hearts. And it can seem more so now than ever that that peace could be stolen. But joy is so much deeper. And so Paul was not looking at the outlook of his future. He wasn't looking at his chains or his imprisonment. He was looking at the author and finisher of his faith, Jesus Christ. Joy comes from him. And so this book that is full of joy is centered on Christ. That's why he wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, that as a believer, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Premise of kind of like where he's pointing the church. He's saying, hey, listen, this joy that comes from Christ, the response as a believer is this, let your life be showing that. And you have Christ, then let it reflect in how you live. Live your life worthy of the gospel. And knowing that this Christ-centered life happens in what we call sanctification, As we looked at in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Yet one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what is ahead. 
Paul knew that in order for this all to take place, the life to reflect Christ and sanctification, what is it centered on? It's have this mind amongst yourselves, which is of Christ Jesus, as he said in Philippians 2. It's all focused on who Jesus is. And so we come to the last chapter of Philippians. Will you read with me starting in verse 1, and then we will pray. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and perceived and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. It reveals your heart and your will. We thank you, God, that we could, as a church, could come together and we ask that the Holy Spirit would illuminate your word to our minds, to our ears, and to our hearts. Lord, we want to not just be hearers of your word, but we want to apply it. We want to be doers of your word. Thank you for this church. Thank you, Lord, that we go forward together, knowing this all because of Christ. Lord, what we've learned in this book this birth of joy that comes from Christ. Lord, help us to really not only be recipients of this joy that's found in Christ, but Lord, it'd be showing forth in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that we know that you are with us. Thank you that we know that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you knowing that your steadfast love, Lord, is given out freely. Thank you. We know it's all because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so even as we have a time of remembrance today of communion, Lord, have that going through our minds right now through the study of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's interesting how the flow of this book goes because if we just picked up and you read verses 1 and 2 and then you, you jump down to or I should say, read verse 1, then you get 2 to 2 and 3, and then verse 4, you're like, how does this all flow? Because in one sense, we know verses 4 through 7 uh, pretty well, especially verses uh, 5, 6. We, we use that a lot. Usually that's even a quote that's been shown. We see that Facebook post or whatever the case may be. Do not be anxious, you know, and we see that. But there's a reasoning to how Paul's writing to this church, wanting to show the bigger picture and that is really his heart for the church, really. And that's where Philippians is a very pastoral book. We see Paul's heart for the church. Notice what it says in verse 1. 
It says, therefore, my brothers, he's continuing the thought. The word therefore connects a previous thought with the one that he's going. And it's interesting. Chapter three is all about doctrine. He's kind of pointing to, hey, this is what we're called to do. That straining forward, knowing who Christ is, letting reflect of living for Christ. And then he says, now listen, there's more to go. But he's talking about, hey, this is my heart for you, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crowned. Notice that he's stacking these words of affirmation to the church upon each other like Lego bricks on top of each other. He's like, hey, listen, you're my lo- whom I love. I long for my joy and crown. Like, man, I, my affection for you goes out. You know, being away from people you love is hard. I can say from firsthand, you know, not being able to see family like you normally did. Lissa and I, we, we lived right down the street from her parents. So we saw them, well, guess what? Probably every day, you know, whether it's through passing or the door, the knocking on the door, whatever the case may be. And so when you don't get to see each other, man, there's this longing for. But I will tell you this too, as while we were in California, guess what? I had a longing to be with you. And you notice how the Lord does that. He's like, hey, these relationships, these godly, brotherly, and sister-like type relationships that we have in Christ, man, you have this longing for, this desire to be with. Paul's saying, hey, I want you to know that what I shared with you, that the doctrine, if you will, should impact your head as well as your heart. It's not just for you to know, but it's to live out. Right doctrine leads to right living. And so this was Paul's heart for the church. He called them his beloved, ones that he had deep affection for. It's interesting, the phrase, whom I long for, out of all Paul's epistles, that word long, Philippians, the church of Philippi, is the only one gets that. That was saying his, this is his desire for, this intense affection for. It's interesting. He calls him his crown on his head, which is basically referring to like how an athlete during his time would run a race. And if they ran and competed and won, the judge would place a wreath on top of their heads. And he's saying, this is like what you are. You're my medal. You're my trophy. You're the ones that I'm bragging about. You know, remember like kids putting, you put their grades or their pictures on the fridge, like you're bragging about. That's kind of what Paul's saying. Hey, you're the ones I'm bragging about because there's evidence or fruit of my labor. Christians, how wonderful to know that as we share the gospel, whether it's with one uh, one another and we see discipleship happening or in the community and there's people that come to know the Lord through your witness and testimony, man, you get to say, you're the crown of my head. You know, you're the joy that's set before me. There's fruit evidence of what Christ has been doing in my life. And so Paul's saying, hey, this is great. This is a connection So you see his pastoral heart. You see a fatherly type heart. You see his relationship that we have with one another. And so if I could just encourage you and stress, more so now than ever, when a time in our lives, at least in my life, is that when we need Christian unity to be strongest, it's now. Because there's a lot of tension and a lot of things pulling us away. And there's a lot of division that's creeping up that we need to be careful about. We need to be mindful of that. And actually, as we study this text, there was division in the church. And notice how Paul addresses it. And not to say that there's division now. No, I I don't see it. And maybe you're like, well, you don't know about this and you don't know about that. Don't tell me afterwards. But anyway, (laughs) if I could just stress, though, guys, why, how important it is for us to have this mindset. Hey, in Christ, we're unified. 
we're one in Christ, we need to have that same mindset because like I said, what I'm alarmed about and what I see and what I could say, well, there's fear and what grieves me, what's going on in our culture, more so ever why I'm like longing for the Lord to say, Lord, come Jesus, come quickly. But until he does, let our light shine brightly and why we need to be one so much more because the world's looking and we need to. And so we need to have that mindset that we're called to know that the Christian does not labor in vain. He says, stand firm thus in the Lord. He's like, okay, I'm going to exhort you right now. What I'm going to continue talking about, what we looked at chapter three, or he didn't really have chapters or verses, but in his letter earlier. And he says, what I'm going to address right now, it's kind of like, hey, I want you to stand firm. And so it's going to be, he's like, hey, I'm going to address something that's going to be hard, but know this, the Lord's at hand. Stand firm. He's using these terms like military terms like, hey, be rooted, be grounded. Are you ready? And I think he knew what was going to take place that like as persecution was growing during his time, he was showing as a pastor, like, hey, this is, I may not be there in your, in your presence physically, but I can still exhort you to stand firm. And so if I, again, as Paul said, stand firm, let me exhort you to stand firm now. Oh, Stand firm in who the Lord is. Stand firm in his word. That's why I want to encourage you to be lovers of God's word. Have that going through your mind and your heart daily. Because what's warring at you and what's down the road and knowing that there's a spiritual battle, as Paul warns us, then we need to stand firm. So we can continue reading. He mentions these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche. And he says, hey, I want you to agree in the Lord. So there's conflict that has risen up. They were at odds, these ladies. Now, we don't know exactly what was happening. We don't know if it was like, hey, uh, that one said something that wasn't nice and the other got offended or one didn't do this or one didn't do We don't know. Paul's like, hey, I'm not going to use this as a time to gossip, but I'm going to address this publicly because I value the unity that's in Christ. We need to defend it. We need to guard it. We need to be mindful of it. So notice that he doesn't give us specifics. I mean, we could scratch our head and say, I don't know. It could have been small, it could have been big, but all I know is that Paul addressed it because unity was at stake. So he says, hey, there was an issue. There was conflict with other believers. Notice what he says also in verse 3. It says, whose names are in the book of life. So he's talking to believers. There were believers in the church. Ladies who weren't getting along. And he's addressing the issue. See, the problem was not that they were not involved because Paul says they were co-laborers or fellow workers. They were the ones that helped him. They were by side by side with me in the gospel together. The problem was they were not united. The issue was not theological, but it was relational. And if I can just, a couple of reminders that I have towards myself and how we are to have, knowing that there may and will be one day conflict with other believers because, uh, it's interesting how the Bible talks about how we're a family. We're brothers and sisters. Now, I don't know if you have brothers or sisters, but did you get along all the time? I didn't. My kids, I could see it, and I'm like, oh, they don't get along. There's usually sibling problems and conflicts that come up. As godly as we may be, we're sinners in need of God's grace daily that we strive for, knowing that there's that work of sanctification happening. And so as that's going, we know there's going to be conflict even with masks where we can't see people's face, we may think they're staring at me funny and when they're smiling behind the mask, we don't know. It could be little things. But that's where we need to be mindful that there's going to be conflict, but how do we guard against it? What do we see? 
Well, first, it may seem small, but the impact is larger than just you or I. Paul addressed the issue to the church, not in gossip, like I said, because we don't know what the issue was, but because conflict with other believers need to be reconciled. Conflict, conflict will lead to division, which impacts the church. So in a way, Paul's saying, hey, this needs to stop because there's more at stake than just the two of them. This is going to spread throughout the church. He asked the church to help. He says, you, my companions, help these women. He's saying, hey, church, come alongside. Let's work together in the unity that we have. He wanted them to help with harmony. What was at stake was the gospel witness to the world. Growth and kingdom work is halted because the attention is on the problem and not what we're called to do. Have you ever had conflict with someone? Oh, I have. Have you ever had it where it kind of consumed your thoughts a little bit and you're like, oh, and you know you need to deal with it and you're trying to think about how to deal with it and what's the best way and you're like, I don't know how they're going to respond and so you're thinking all about this. Well, what did your attention just do? It went from what are we called to do, missionally minded, to now, oh man, our attention is on this issue. Not to say we're never going to have issues, but you see how your attention stopped and turned that's what happens within the church when there's conflict. And that's why we need to guard it. Not to sugarcoat it and sweep it under the rug. When it happens, we need to deal with it in a godly way and a way for reconciliation. But I'm just pointing out, look what the enemy does with it. It's like, oh, you're so busy with this that you can't go forward. There's not this advancement. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Paul outlines kind of like the progression of bitterness. He says now what happens after bitterness is wrath and after wrath there's anger and clamor. And then slander, you start putting that person down whether verbally out loud or mentally and then all of a sudden there could be the malice or the action towards that person. That's why bitterness is so dangerous. Because it starts with you and then it slowly festers out. And the problem is, usually when you have that attitude or the bitterness towards someone, they may not even know. They just think like, what's wrong with you kind of thing. Really, what happens, it starts affecting you. Robs you of the joy that's in the, of the Lord. And so we need to be careful on what happens here as Paul does that. How can we handle that? Well, first, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, the next verse, as Paul outlines bitterness and the growth or what takes place, he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So in a way, as Paul outlined the progression of bitterness, he now mentions how to fight off bitterness. It starts with forgiveness. Let me ask you a question. How many times are we to forgive our brother or sister in the Lord who sins against us? What did Jesus say when Peter asked him? He says, 70 times what? Seven. Forgiveness should be on our heart because we've been forgiven greatly. Paul says, just as Christ forgave you, Christ forgave us. So forgiveness needs to be at the forefront of our minds as we go forward with one another. As we've been forgiven greatly, we should forgive others. Second is grace. Like I said, in family, there's tension and strife. We're not perfect. The gospel has penetrated our hearts of the believer, and the sanctification is still happening. And so for us, 
We need to be graceful towards one another. As we've received God's grace, may we also reflect that in how we are with one another. And we also need to strive for unity. If we have forgiveness on our minds, which then helps us to have grace towards one another, then we should have an internal mindset. Man, I know that this is temporary in our life. One day the Lord's going to call us home. And guess what? With other believers, we're going to be there forever. So why don't we get along now, knowing that we got to be along, getting along forever? That's how we need to have that mindset. <laughs> I think this is also important that Christians need to be mindful that they're already united in Christ. We just strive to maintain and not to forget that. So because of Christ and what he's already done, I can say, well, we're already one. Sometimes we just forget that. And sometimes we allow other things to creep in to separate us. But Christ already did the work. So I'm not aiming for that. Like, hey, let me do this because we got to be unified. No, in Christ, we already are. Let me go forward. So knowing that Paul's addressing conflict, we come to verse four. So he's kind of saying like, hey, there's conflict in the church. Now, how do we go forward? There's conflict around you. How do you go forward? Or what does it say in verse four? Rejoice in the Lord. What? How, how often? When you feel like it, when it's convenient, when things are good, when you're, you're feeling joyful and happy at that moment. No, he says, what about when you're sad or there is conflict, there is tension, when there is chaos? When are you to rejoice in the Lord? Always. Again, I say rejoice. Notice how Paul repeats it in a sense. He's like, he's saying, hey, didn't catch the first time. Let me stress it. Again, I say rejoice. What are we called to do? Rejoice. Rejoice. Emphatically, Paul commands us to rejoice. There's several commands that he mentions in these verses. Number one is to rejoice. And I truly believe as J.I. Packer, he said, true theology leads to doxology. When you really think about who God is, the greatness of God, it should have a response from you of praise. And God's amazing. Let it out be outflowing now who I am and, or who he is and who I am. We can rejoice in all seasons. We can rejoice in the midst of conflict with this world and with one another. We can rejoice even with what's going around us. And even we can rejoice being somewhat afraid of what the future has. We can rejoice knowing that God holds our future in his hands. We can rejoice even when they're challenging times because no matter what, true joy is based on who? Jesus. It's who he is. The phrase that Paul mentions in verse 4 also reflects habitual rejoicing. Just like we have maybe bad habits, we also have some good habits. And he's saying, hey, have this habitual rejoicing. Let it be flowing from you that, man, you know what to do no matter what is what? To rejoice. It's like second nature. Remember, Paul, he didn't just say that, but it's true of him because when he was in prison in, in Philippi, remember when he went there? What happened at midnight? It says that he was rejoicing. He was singing hymns. He was rejoicing. And so he's saying, hey, it's reflective of who he is that this is what we're called to do. The second command, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Verse 5, it also could be translated gentleness. Interesting that he's saying, hey, okay, first and foremost, let's get the right perspective. Who is God? 
Man, he's worthy of all praise. And if that's your, where your attention is, what's going to happen next? Well, you're going to live reflective of that. Interesting, he said, be gentle. When there's conflict, do you always want to be gentle? I'll be honest, sometimes I just want to be right. <laughs> right? You're just like, oh, yeah? But he says, be gentle. Be gentle. Who is the gentle one that we look at? Jesus. Matthew chapter 11. We know that Jesus, this, these words remind us and we're known, they're known. But he says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am what? He's gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus was faced before those who falsely accused him when he was arrested and beaten, even on the cross, there was not this act of having to defend himself, but he knew why, the bigger picture. It was one of gentleness. In conflict, we need to remind ourselves, especially within one another, within the church, with brothers and sisters in the Lord, are we gentle with one another? So quickly our flesh comes out, I think, where we want to either defend or to be right. But we need to be gentle in how we navigate because of the eternal mindset. The third command, he says, the Lord is at hand. Meaning, turn your attention to where it matters. The Lord is at hand. This isn't about Jesus' second coming. It's about his presence and his nearness. The Lord is near. Don't be troubled. Hey, it's the Lord amongst us. Do not be troubled. He's with you right now. Do not be troubled. Jesus said as he ascended to heaven, I am with you always. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. In Psalm 73, verse 28, says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, I should say Psalms 34, verse 18, sorry. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So again, if you rejoice in the Lord, you're reminded of his presence, you're reminded of his nearness, and it's going to help to respond in how we're called to be looking to Christ. The next command, he says in verse 6, which is probably one we all know and we repeat, he says, do not be what? Anxious about some things, about big things, little things. What does he say? Anything. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll be honest. It's probably a lot easier to quote this verse than really have it affect our hearts because if you've really truly been anxious about something, it's hard to let it go. Uh, waking up in the middle of the night thinking about that. Thinking of like, what about this? And I have this tendency, I don't know why, like I go to bed so easily, but then come three or four, I just wake up and my mind's going. I'm like, what is going on? And some stuff is good, like I want to write it down because I don't want to forget. And other times it's like, why am I thinking and worrying about something like this? And I'll even talk with Alyssa and I say, I was thinking about this. And then I start going down this road of like, okay, if I do this and do that. And I'm like, I can't control this. Like, it doesn't matter. Why? Because we have this tendency with anxiousness or worry that it consumes us. But he says, don't be anxious about anything. It's all reflective. Rejoice in the Lord. Have you noticed when you have your attention on the Lord and you're rejoicing, 
you're being thankful, as he says in this passage, how we're called to be, that your attention turns from your worry onto him. Man, what a talk about a diverting of your attention. That's what we're called to do. So don't be anxious, but what do we do instead? But in everything, by prayer. By prayer. I know it's one of the things we could say as Christians, like, don't worry, but just pray. But so true. Christian, have you ever gone to the Lord when your hearts are heavy and you cast it before him? Cast your cares before him because he, why? He cares for you. Christian, do you ever see that we're called not to worry? Even Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we're called to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, talking about what we'd worry about, food or clothing. It says, will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has worries of itself. Each day has its own, own trouble. We give God our requests, but we also are called to do it with what? Thanksgiving. Why? It's because we know that he is God and he's holy and worthy and he has your life in his hands and that we could go before him, that he inclines his ear towards you, meaning as a father to a child, he listens and that we are thankful that we could approach his throne of boldness or point his, I'm sorry, let me restart again. We could approach his throne of grace boldly because of Jesus. So we should be thankful because of that. And notice the next aspect. So that's a command, but then we see a promise. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a promise in Scripture. You know, there's a difference in how God, when he has a promise, he keeps his promises in comparison to us. My daughter Ada she, she takes words that I say differently than how I intend them. For example, she'll say, Daddy, can we get ice cream tonight? Now, I love ice cream, so that sounds like a great idea. But I don't know what's going on. And so I'll say, well, maybe. Let's see what's happening. Well, she takes that maybe. And for her, that's like a certain, like, you said it. Like, we're doing it. And so it could be evening. And I'll be like, we're just getting ready. And I'm like, all right, it's time for bed. And she's like, wait, hold on. You said we could get ice cream. And I'm like, no, I didn't. I said, maybe. She's like, nah, uh. And so for her, maybe is like a positive. And for me, he's like, well, I like the idea. I just don't know. But with God, his promise though, he says, hey, listen, listen, do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And what do we receive? It says the peace of God. The peace of God. The only way that we can have the peace of God is to have peace with God. As Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, the only way that we can have peace with God is because of Christ. And for the believer, we have peace with God. And he gives us his peace, his presence, his nearness, that we could rest in him. And it says, surpasses all understanding, meaning, man, even though there's chaos and conflict, you could have peace. Or the world will say, what in the world? Why? How is that possible? But notice your heart and your mind are guarded in Christ Jesus. I love that. Because when you're anxious, your mind's going. Your heart's troubled. And what does he say? No, actually your heart and your mind are guarded in Christ Jesus. They're in Christ. So enjoy true peace. We're guarded in Christ Jesus. The next command we see in verse 8. says, think about these things. 
Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what are we called to do? Think of these things. Our minds are amazing. But it's also, they could be our enemies at times. Like I said, when you're anxious, have you ever just dwelt on that and you thought about that? It controls you, consumes you. It's like, no, what are you called to do? Think about what are these things? If I could summarize, I'd say it's of Christ. If we were to say, well, whatever is true, we'd say, well, it's word. Whatever is honorable, it's how we're called to live according to who Christ is. Whatever is just, the only way we be justified is in Christ. Whatever is pure is we look to Jesus who is truly pure without blemish. Whatever is lovely, the true definition of lovely is found in Christ. Whatever is commendable is because of who Christ is. If there's anything excellent, he is the highest of all excellency. See what I'm going here is like, yes, I know that's a, the, the uh, I'd say for the kids' answer, Christian kids' answers for everything is Jesus. But I would say, what are we to think about? It'd be what? Jesus. You could say that. So what are we called to think about? Jesus. Jesus. That's where Paul's saying, think about these things. It's Christ. Does he consume your thoughts? Christian, are you in conflict? Think of Jesus. Christian, is there worry in your life? Turn your attention to Jesus. I know that seems like you're like, but John, you don't understand. If you lived in my shoes, you would get it. I'm like, I may never understand, but I will tell you this. God's word is true. We're called to think of him. Think about him. This is why it's dangerous for you not to preach yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what Christ has done. Think about these things. And then lastly, he says, practice these things. Don't just be a hearer of God's word. Be a doer of God's word. He's saying, hey, the things that you've learned, meaning what you've learned from his, Paul's teaching. So I would tell you, what have you learned from God's word and teaching? Practice them. The things that they received was from Paul. The letters, the notes. We have received God's word. We read it personally as well as corporately. We participate together. The things heard, they heard the reports of Paul, his testimony. And it's important for us as Christians to know that our witness is also something that should be encouraging towards one another as an example. And the things that they have seen. Have you seen God do great things? I have. I've seen God do great things even since I've been here. I've seen him move and work in such a way. He says, now, as you think of these things, now practice them, live them out. Church, we're called not just to sit back and just say, okay, well, I I read God's word and I'm called to hear God's word and, and I could quote God's word. He's like, do you live it out? Not only think of these things, but practice these things. And one of the ways that we could practice these things is through communion. And so I'm thankful that we have this time of communion. As we transition, uh, I want to make sure everyone has uh, one of the, the, the elements. If you don't, just raise your hand. Mike's back there and, and Ed, and so they could help pass them out. So raise your hand if you don't have one, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get them to you. Practice these things. You know, as believers, 
We're called to do this often. Jesus had the disciples in the upper room the night that he was arrested. And he took the bread and he took the cup. And as he passed around the bread, he said, take and eat for this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And with the cup, he's talked about that being his blood, the blood of the covenant. And we're called to drink. And so we do this as a church to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us, or took on our sin, so that we be counted, might be counted the righteousness of God. Jesus took our place on the cross. He's the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sin. Jesus satisfied the wrath of the Father by taking it upon him so that we could have forgiveness. And so as we think about and participate in communion, we also see how serious our sin is. That Jesus gave of his life freely. Our sin is costly. And so we do this to remember that as well. How good he is, how great he is, our need for him. We also rejoice at the Lord's Supper as it points to an eternal supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We rejoice that our sin is forgiven for the believer. We rejoice that we receive the gift of eternal life. And so we do this. So church, as we participate together, um, let me just stress this though. The Bible also gives us that warning not to take this in an unworthy manner. And the church did this, that Paul warned the Corinthian churches because they were looking at the Lord's Supper as not a reminder, but as a snack time. And this right here is for us to have a reflection of who Jesus is. Also, I think this is a time for us to go before the Lord and say, Lord, and I want to make sure my heart's right before you, that I want to live my life that's of a hypocrisy, but one that's reflective of Jesus truly. And so it's a time for us to confess. But this is also just for believers only. And so if there's anyone here that is not a believer, meaning that Jesus is not Lord and Savior, that you've confessed your sin, that you received God's grace, you should not partake in it because this is for the, God, the, the family of God, the brothers and sisters in the Lord. But I would encourage you not to miss the opportunity, though, that you actually would get, make yourself available to say, Lord, I'm coming before you, that you confess your heart, that you would call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Thank you for listening. And if you would like more information, please visit rcbcbellingham.com.